Good afternoon, guys. My name is Anthony Campbell, and this is the Bridging Schisms podcast. First one ever. Welcome to the pilot episode. Before I get started, I want to thank Coach Stainbrook here at CCU, helping me get this off and um, believing in me and starting this, and also Dave, who's helping me record right now here in the studio. I would like to jump into something that's been on my heart lately. Ever since I read this article back in early January, I have been obsessed with this idea. It's an article written by Kat Rosenfield for unheard.com, and the title name is The Death of Intimacy. Sex Positivity Has Created a Cult of Celibacy. Now, obviously, she's coming at it from a secular point of view, which we have to keep in mind. However, I think she gets a lot right in this article. And so throughout the course of this episode, we will be diving into what is going on in our culture and the epidemic that we are currently facing of the death of intimacy within relationship. So let's jump into this article. The sexual entrepreneur keeps a spreadsheet of every encounter she's ever had. It's populated with all kinds of information, how much they talked, the different positions they tried, whether it was the first or second or fifth time, and of course, whether the sex was paid or unpaid. What might be most remarkable about this document and the cultural moment in which it exists is that this final data point doesn't necessarily make much difference. The spreadsheet in question belongs to an internet personality known as Ayala who views the physical act of love with the detached curiosity of a scientist and the strategic eye of a statistician. She's a rare bird, not just in her approach to sex, but in how she success successfully parlayed it into a miniature empire. Ayello is a former cam girl, now escort, and an elite member of the 1% on the amateur porn subscription site OnlyFans, where she once netted six figures per month sharing self-produced photos and videos. But while it's not unusual for someone in her line of work to be good at decoupling heart and hormones from mind, when Iyela appeared in conversation with sex educator Lacey Green at last week's Hereticon Thought Con Conference in Miami, the presentation revealed less about the niche mindset of the sex worker than it did about how ordinary people struggle to connect in a gamified dating landscape driven by data before passion. In the era of the algorithm, the personal brand, the Tinder marketplace, perhaps all sex carries a whiff of transaction, whether or not any money exchanges hands. In a, in a world where young single people are increasingly taught to be frightened of any threat to their safety, emotional, not just physical, the prospect of true intimacy grows ever distant, ever more impossible. What's happening in heterosexual couplings now is also crucially about what isn't happening, a sexual famine amongst Gen Z, who are upending the entire romantic landscape as they come of age. There is less sex, but also less dating, less social interaction, writ large without the intermediary of a screen. Let's stop right there. Something that I have noticed within my own generation is, even though I go to a Christian university, and even though some of these topics such as sex is prohibited by our university, that doesn't mean it stops it from happening. In all honesty, if anything, we end up objectifying each other even more, not just physically, but just how can we use one another in order to enter into a dating relationship? I will give you love if you give me love. And according to this contract, so long as I'm getting love or however you want to define it, I will give it to you as well. But the moment that it stops, the moment that it quits, we no longer have entered into a relationship. In fact, now it's just transactional. 
and I will only give you what's transactional so long as you're giving it back to me. And it's honestly, it's horrifying. The fact that dating relationships have moved so far away from getting to know someone in, in order to get to use someone has become the norm. Let's jump back in. This isn't the free love of the sexual revolution, nor the sex positivity espoused by the commitment-free hookup culture that reigned in the early nowadays. It's something new, and also something post-Me Too, and perhaps not entirely unrelated to our contemporary obsession with consent as the primary, sometimes only, framework for determining if a given encounter was good or not. Meeting strangers on the internet went in a generational spasm from being maximally unsafe to the only way to do things. As the existence of dating apps rendered the old ways of connecting not just quaint, but creepy. Our pre-internet rituals were especially fraught with the risk of approaching someone who didn't consent to be seen as a romantic prospect. Now, every interaction is preceded by the assurance that your crush has been contractually agreed to be lusted after, that no boundaries are being violated. At the same time, the idea of sex as something people do for fun seems faded from the public consciousness, perhaps a natural consequence of too many millennial women having discovered that the utopian promise of feminist sex positivity was laden with hidden negatives that being able to have sex free of stigma or slut-shaming still comes with cost, nevertheless. I think she's onto something here. A book that I had just recently read is called The Great Sex Rescue by um, Sheila Ray Gregory with her daughter and a friend as well. And in it, they discuss this idea about how sex has moved from a need for both the couple, that both a woman and a man should experience sexual pleasure within the relationship, to only the man experiencing pleasure and that it's a woman's obligation to give sex to her husband. This idea is absolutely crazy, especially to me. I didn't necessarily grow up within a Christian context. My parents and I were kind of on the outskirts, kind of the outcasts within the church. Not because we weren't in the church, but my parents weren't confession Christians until about middle school, high school. And because of that, I kind of stayed away from the sexual notions that the church had put forward. And as I was reading this book, I was just constantly amazed at how insane it was that evangelicals had such a terrible view of sex, especially since we profess that God is the person who created sex. How have we moved so far away from the idea that sex is not just for pleasure, it's just not just for the husband, but that it's supposed to be this complete intimacy, this complete deep knowing of one another within Christ. Kat Rosenfield goes on. When you consider how many women have been floundering around for, vast year, for years in the vast great chasm of sex that is technically consensual but not remotely enjoyable, it's no surprise that the act itself took a reputational hit. The emerging perception now is that sex is dangerous, dicey, probably not worth the risk, especially as concepts like trauma and abuse have expanded to include everything from the sting of a lover's betrayal to the heartbreak when a consensual relationship ends. See also the increased use of the word grooming once reserved for the sexual predation of children to describe flirtatious relationships between consenting adults. Under this rubric, the idea that someone might engage in physical intimacy for fun seems practically absurd. Young women in the post-Me Too era are taught that they can't let their guard down for one single moment, while young men are told that they're always just one misread cue 
or mis mixed message away from committing a rape. That point right there. While young men are told that they're always just one misread cue or mixed message away from committing a rape. Dr. Jordan Peterson talks about how young men have been called monsters for the past decade and that constantly in school we're teaching men that they're these sexual animals who have no control over themselves. It's absurd. Uh, Sheila Ray Gregory talks about that as well. To label all men as Don Juans or Polly D from Jersey Shore teaches young women that they have to settle for one of them and that eventually they have to, uh, they're obligated to give them sex or else they won't be able to control themselves. Meanwhile, a good loving husband who is a good man who wants to show her the love of Christ is on the outskirts because his wife thinks that he's going to become the sexual animal. And the thing is, is uh, Sheila Ray Gregory says, when the husbands find out after decades of marriage that this is how their wives have viewed sex and how they've been taught, they've been absolutely horrified. Young men are not animals. We're not monsters. But if you continue to bring that message out, well, of course, young women and young men are going to believe it because you keep having it repeated to them. And that's something that I think we need to do better in the church is to teach young men that this whole every man's battle when it comes to lust and pornography, it's not every man's battle. Not every single man deals with pornography. And we need to have a more nuanced conversation around it as well. Looking and noticing a woman's body and recognizing that she's an attractive woman is not lust. When you notice that and begin to lust after her in your mind, obviously, then we're having a conversation about lust. But to label every young man as this sexual animal who can't control himself is not good for women or men. Back to the article. It's hardly surprising under the circumstances that this generation would take refuge in the safety of dating apps, or for that matter, in the certainty of transactional sex. Whatever the pratfalls of subscribing to a freelance porn star's OnlyFans, the way some people used to do with Playboy, Paying for intimacy outright at least eliminates the dangerous ambiguity that plagues an ordinary dating relationship, where the line between asking and coaxing, or coaxing and coercion, might shift at any moment and leave you standing with your pants down on the wrong side of the line. Whether it's settling for an imperfect match or turning to OnlyFans to fill your needs, human beings have always appreciated the security and promise of a sure thing. And when an entire progressive messaging apparatus insists that prostitution is the new empowerment, there's little to dissuade young women from leveraging the minefield of sexuality into a rem remunerative side hustle or young men from gravitating toward it as a safer form of sex. We may not have quite reached the point where making freelance pornography is a rite of passage akin to attending the prom, even if anecdotes from Green suggest that do you have an OnlyFans might soon become, will you go out with me, among the school-age set? But will anyone be surprised when some young, enterprising, self-identified male feminists suggest that subscribing to OnlyFans is the only way to ensure proper consent actually? Are we perhaps already halfway there? All of this is happening against the backdrop of a radical shift in how we conceive of sex, sexuality, self. In the age of social media, sexual orientation is something you identify into a public performance that requires no partner and no physical follow-through. Consider also the odd proliferation of straight married women who identify as queer, based on what seems mainly like a conviction that they're just too interesting to be plain old heterosexual. It's all identification, no action. A complete decoupling of sexual identity from the act itself. 
if this is a sexual revolution, it's the chastest one we've ever had. At the same time, the battle of the sexes is arguably, arguably won by women, who are outperforming men in everything from education to investment. They vest boys in high school and outnumber them on college campuses. They go to grad school in greater numbers and earn the majority of PhDs. And while they haven't yet flooded boardrooms or executive suites, women are increasingly likely to out-earn the men they marry, all of which adds up to a total inversion of the old dating dynamics wherein women with slightly less education or earning power made ideal mates for men with slightly more. Instead, a whole lot of accomplished, educated, highly paid ladies are competing in a dating pool that contains a scant few high-achieving men, and if they can't land one, then their options are to date down or not at all. In this reality, it's the women jostling for position, optimizing their dating profiles, trying to look good to the algorithm that will in turn serve them up so to someone as a desirable catch. And the odds are stacked against them for reasons that will someday make fascinating fodder for evolutionary psychologists. Women are far harsher judges of male desirability than vice versa. Studies suggest that about 80% of women on dating apps are in competition for about 20% of the men. The whole enterprise highlights the distinction without much difference between selling yourself in the dating marketplace and just, well, selling yourself. Maybe you're trying to make money, or maybe you're trying to get married, but it's the same hustle more or less. If you're not keeping a spreadsheet yourself, you're just a data point on someone else's. Except here, the disposability is a feature, not a bug. If your OnlyFans affair bores you, you can just unsubscribe. If your Tinder match fails to deliver, you can swipe the other way and vanish behind a block. No fuss, no muss, no breakup. Tinder, like Twitter, is not a real place. Let's talk about that. Something that my mentor, Dr. Mitch, has talked about a lot amongst students, especially in our private conversations, is we have a tendency to live between the space between our ears rather than the space in between us, meaning reality, where our bodies are physically present and yet our minds are elsewhere. We spend our time trying to manage other people's perceptions of ourselves without ever giving the opportunity that we might be misunderstood. Isn't that the definition of freedom? Isn't that the whole point of relationship, is to allow yourself to be misunderstood, to not try to perceive a perception? Because in doing so, would you not allow yourself in being misunderstood to allow that person to come forth and ask, hey, what did you mean by that? Or, hey, what did, what did you mean by this when you did this? Allowing yourself to be misunderstood allows for communication. And with communication comes relationship. Because conflict and being misunderstood is all a part about intimacy. Without it, there wouldn't be intimacy. I also really enjoyed the point that she made about the difference between selling yourself. I think more or less that's what we do these days. We'll put our best foot forward and hide the rest of ourselves in some closet, locked in a basement, making sure that no one ever gets to truly see us. We're terrified that someone will condemn us the same way we've condemned ourselves. That's not how relationships work, folks. In order for someone to love you, in order for someone to see you fully, for you to be known intimately, you have to enter into that dark place with them, and then vice versa. See, there's a difference between reciprocity 
and transactions. Reciprocity comes out of mutual love for one another. Transaction is, I give you this because you gave me this, or I'll give you this because you'll give me this. That's not love. That's a contract. And sadly, contracts expire. Why do you think we're above 50% in the divorce rate within America? Not only in America, how about within the church? We proclaim that we're the arbiters of marriage, and we're supposed to be protecting the institution of marriage, and yet we enter into marriages and leave them willingly. That's something to think about. This might make women like Ayello the smart ones. If they're savvy and lucky, they can work the system to their advantage instead of fumbling around inside it like blind supplicants, making metadata of human beings will always be better as bus a business proposition than as a strategy for human connection, which might explain why, despite the lauded safety and convenience of the apps, Gen Z is not only having less sex, but also suffering from greater rates of depression and anxiety. Mind you, like I said, she's coming at this from a secular position, so she's assuming that even in dating relationships, couples should be, should be having sex. I don't, maybe not should be, but she's assuming that they will. But because of the lack of intimacy, because people are afraid, especially emotionally, to get hurt, she's assuming that that's why they're not even having sex. She goes on, she says, dating apps, social media, the sexual marketplace, where you can pay for parasocial affairs, all of this has been an attempt to organize not just raw data, but raw humanity. To contain the complexities of love and sex and intimacy in a set of neat little checkboxes. If it didn't exactly make us happy, then at least we thought it would keep us safe. And it did, sort of, insofar as there's a certain sort of protection in the avoidance of intimacy. If it's all just a numbers game, if you're getting what you paid for, if you never truly allow yourself to be vulnerable and naked, literally or figuratively, with another person, then nobody will ever get close enough to hurt you. Right here. This is, this is a great point. But they won't get close enough to touch you either. And so maybe this is where the, sec the next sexual revolution will emerge. A among young people who are tired of trying to connect with the contraceptive barrier of a screen between them who resent the hidden manipulations of the algorithm in messy human affairs, who would rather risk the pain of an old-school heartbreak, who understand the difference between being empowered and being a control freak, who know in their bones that they would rather be sorry than safe. Thank you, Ms. Rosenfeld. What a wonderful point she makes there right at the end who know in their bones that they would rather be sorry than safe. If only we could say the same. We spend our days doing our best to protect our hearts. And it's a worthy cause. Not everybody deserves to see the insides and the depths of us. But if that's all we do, no one will ever get to know us. Just the image that we put up. I have a men's group that meets here every Friday, led by myself and Dr. Mitch. And this is something that we've been discussing because we want intimacy. We want relationship, not just with romantic relationships, but with guys as well. And the thing we keep coming back to is we don't know how to regulate our emotions because Men typically tend to fall into two categories when it comes into emotions. Uh, most of us, 
would like to admit that we have no emotion. There's a there's a show called The Witcher, and The Witcher supposedly don't have human emotion because they're mutants. But as one of the mages, or wizards, if you will, confronted one of the main character, who's a witcher, and said, you feel all the same things we do. Normal love, normal sorrow, normal grief, but you continue to be a certain word that I cannot repeat so that no one ever gets close enough to you and that you never get close enough to anybody else. I hope that this podcast continues to emphasize this point of how do we, as Christians, enter into the great conversation of what does it mean to be intimate, truly? How do we let ourselves be known to one another? I think something for me that I've been learning as I've been enforcing boundaries with not only myself but with others is I've completely changed the way that I've looked at women. I grew up playing hockey, and let me tell you, when it comes to locker room talk, I was initially the slowest person in the locker room in getting dressed and getting undressed. But my eighth grade year, because of the things I heard and how they talked about women, it made me be the fastest person dressed and person undressed. I was out of there so quickly, and my parents eventually picked up on it. And when I was telling them what was happening, they were appalled. I think the thing that allowed both my parents to view humans very differently is the way in which they were raised. It was kind of assumed, with at least with my parents and how they were raised, that you would never treat another human being like that. Obviously, they grew up post-sexual revolution, and they're the reason why my generation has decided to go to safety instead of the sex positivity that was once there. A part of the article that I didn't read, it's a little graphic, was talking about how women used to be the gatekeepers of sex because men were animals and they had to say no. But the sex positivity thing turned from you were a slut if you said yes to you were a prude if you said no to sex. Well, in doing so, women stopped having sex because men's view of sex was internet porn. What kind of woman wants that? That's not intimacy. That's use. That's completely taking somebody and using them, if not abusing them. Because in certain scenes, in certain pornographic settings, that's what's going on. It's abuse and rape. And so why would women consider that to be intimate? They don't. And so now, as she said, we're moving into just ghosting people because we'd rather be safe. We've moved into Tinder and OnlyFans because it's safer that way. We can have the risk of intimacy without actually taking the risk because the phone, the technological intermediary is helping us stay safe. And as she said, we'll never be touched again. We'll never be seen naked before another person. And as Christians, obviously we know or at least we've been taught that that is saved for the marital bed. But if we're going to be realistic here, the generation in which we've grown up in is becoming less and less a thing that is being saved among young evangelical and Catholic Christians. No one waits for marriage anymore. Why would you? 
when sex is the thing that supposedly shows you that that's the only way to be loved, why would you keep that from yourself? We've completely distorted intimacy. Because now intimacy is considered to be anything sexual, and yet could not be further from it. The pyramid of relationship that I was taught in one of my classes starts with truth slash reality. Recognizing that we live in the present, not in our heads, not in the phones. We can make ourselves really interesting on the phone without actually being interesting at all. Why be interesting if your Instagram can be interesting for you? Why have any hobbies, any values, any virtues, if the image that you portray on your screen can have it all for you? Brad Paisley has a pretty funny song about this. It's, I believe it's called The Internet. And he talks about the irony of you can be whoever you want on the Internet. You can be this completely different person, catfishing people and getting them to believe this is who you actually are. When in reality, it's the opposite of who you actually are. And you'll never actually end up meeting any of these girls or any of these guys because, oh, if only they saw the real you. If only you knew me the way I knew me, then you'd hate me too. And so it's much easier, much safer to create an image. But the problem is, eventually, you'll lose who you actually are in the image. We look to other people. We look to the screens. We look to, the, we look to people, relationships, work, money to define who we are. But eventually, when it all dries up, we're left with just ourselves. As my mentor says, a fate worse than death. So as we continue to dive into intimacy and what it looks like, how do we enter into Christian liberty and Christian intimacy? Let us not forget that we must live in reality. He then goes into the vital, in terms of the vital relationship pyramid I was just discussing, forgiveness and reconciliation boundaries, conflict. There's so many other things we build a relationship upon before you can even get to intimacy. The pyramid's built for a re the way it is for a reason. Just the stronger the foundation going up, intimacy is the pinnacle. But if we, we usually try to flip it and have intimacy at the bottom and everything else will follow. That's not how life works. You try to do that, well, I can tell you firsthand trying to have intimacy first, it all falls apart. It's terrible. I saw the worst joke and the worst reality on Instagram this one time. And it was a, t it was a tweet that they had screenshotted and brought to Instagram. And the tweet said, how modern relationships go. You have sex first. And then step two, you go into childhood trauma, start discussing childhood trauma. And step three, you go to the grocery store together. It's sad. You no longer, it's not flipped, it's completely flipped, completely backwards. And Chesterton talks about this. He talks about how without actually having ideals, without having good virtues, this is the society we lived in, we live in. The world flips upside down. I love the way in which he portrays it. 
He goes, it's not the weakening of modern major morals that's the problem. It's the strengthening of minor morals. These people can tell you all the ways in which you should live, how you should live, without actually telling you why you should live. And when you start doing that, it's no wonder why we enter into the relationships we have today. No wonder how we got here. Well, we stopped building character. We stopped emphasizing virtues. We, sto- we took God out of the equation, and we said free reign on sex. And where has it brought us? It's brought us to, funny enough, celibacy among the secular people. And I think the exact opposite within the Christian community. The one in which I claim to reside in. The one in which I do reside in. My challenge to you, listeners, for all those listening. Take a deep look into the emptiness that you're trying to fill. I can say this because my family's been plagued by addiction. And it's been up to me to recognize that the addiction stopped with me. That addiction will no longer take my family, my future family, by the reins in which it has my past family. But learn how to live with the emptiness. Maybe the reason why it's so scary is because it's a mirror. Maybe why the reason we can't sit alone and be alone is because we're afraid of what we'll find, of what we know is already there. And that's ourselves. But we can't have that because we've already condemned that. This has been the Bridging Schisms podcast with Anthony Campbell. Thank you.